Welcome, everybody, to the first and inaugural edition of Everyday Eternal. Um, with me are Kobe, uh, SD Matt, and Sam, and uh, they're going to go ahead and introduce themselves, and then we're going to wrap around and talk about uh, what this podcast is about, what we're going to talk about, uh, what we're going to cover, and the various shenanigans that you can expect from us uh, on a regular basis with Everyday Eternal. So I'm going to pass it to uh, Jacob Corey, otherwise known as Kobe, and, uh, and then we're just going to go around the table and kind of introduce ourselves. Hello everyone, I'm uh, Jacob Corey, also known by uh, Kobe on some online handles. Um, you may have seen me in uh, some Star City events, I uh, have a few top 8s in the last couple of years. Uh, I used to be a big Maverick player, now I'm venturing into uh, uncharted territories with uh, some rogue strategies. And um, I hope I'll be able to provide a lot of eternal insight for, uh, for you listeners. Alright, and I'm Matt Pavlik. Also known as SD Matt on the source and other websites. Um, been playing Legacy since about 2003-2004 for the Switch. Uh, I like to play mid-range strategies or control-based strategies. And you may know me from, like I said, source or some Star City events stuff like that. So hopefully we can bring you some cool Legacy information that you can use in your upcoming tournaments. Pass it on to Sam. Hi, my name is Sam Craven. I go by The Crab on The Source, or The Craven One on pretty much everywhere else. I've been playing Legacy for about five years, and most of the time you can find me playing Blue-White Make You Hate Your Life. I like humility and moat all the time, all day, every day. And uh, I hope to contribute almost a noob aspect, I guess, since I've only been playing five versus everyone else playing since the Switch. And uh, I'm Sean O'Brien, also known as uh, Ned Leeds on The Source. Um, I don't pro- I don't post anything particularly productive on there. Um, I usually just enjoy trolling others. As far as what I play, I usually just play whatever everyone else isn't playing um, because I'd rather win with something janky and original than uh, actually succeed and make money in the game. And um, so I hope to bring the uh, get off my lawn perspective because I've been playing since 1994 uh, and I once had a school of magic named after me, which is now completely obsolete. All right, exciting stuff, Sean. So we're going to run down a basic uh, format for the show, and since this is the first one, a little bit more explicit about it. Um, We hope to cover the announcements, kind of news, what's won the last couple of tourneys, set spoilers, uh, any other kind of administrative announcements that we get from the mothership. Um, And then we we hope to cover two special topics a week, at least one, and if it runs long, um, maybe just one. And then uh, kind of at the end we'll wrap up and uh, hopefully be able to address any audience questions, comments, insults, or slurs um, that you email to us uh, at a soon-to-be-determined email address. Um, and that's kind of the end of our show format. Uh, and hopefully we'll cover some new ground that isn't covered uh, on some of the other podcasts that you'll find out there. And so again, we're going to stick to internal formats. Uh, majority of our time is probably going to be spent discussing legacy. It's get back to the most popular, but we'll definitely touch on vintage and maybe touch on modern uh, occasionally as well. So, so first off, we want to kick off, I think the big bear in the room, uh, at least for the last, I don't know, three or four weeks, um, before we get into tournaments, um, I think the, the big cloud hanging over eternal formats now is the change to the legend rule. Uh, 
And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, the legend rule, I'm going to review it real quickly. Uh, the new legend rule allows each player uh, to maintain a copy of a legendary permanent, uh, such as a land, a creature. This change also affects planeswalkers. So planeswalker uniqueness is now on a per player basis. Um, the other significant change is that uh, whereas before both of the permanents were buried as a state-based action, um, now you have the opportunity to keep one of them. So this this has a big impact on several uh, eternal cards. It has a big impact on uh, uh, several reserveless cards, uh, and it has a big impact on uh, lines of play, on strategy uh, in eternal formats, especially with respect to plane blockers. So um, let's go around the room a little bit, maybe, and just give kind of a quick. Uh, you know, a blurb about how you feel about the, the rule change. Some some people are positive, some people are negative, some people are ambivalent. I think I fall into the third category of ambivalence. Um, you know, I've been playing, like I said, since since '94, so I've seen many things come and go that were supposed to kill the game. I've seen many rule changes that have made my blood boil and made me want to take a Greyhound bus to Washington uh, to find Marrow and duck cave him. To a boiler hot grease, mana burn going away, for example, um, the removal of interrupts. Uh, some of those things just infuriated me at the time. So I think I might be a little bit numb to change at this point. Um, and I think that for every card that gets hosed, there's also probably a card that benefits from this change. Um, so, and I can see where they're going from a marketing perspective. They want they want their marquee characters to be persistent. Um, and they want them on the battlefield in their marquee events. Uh, so, you know, I think it hurts. It hurts as many strategies as it helps. Certain cards, in my opinion, get a power boost. I don't think it's it's a stretch to say uh, all the cradle lands, Sarasanthum Gaze Cradle, get a pretty significant power boost. Um, and I think the obvious deck building uh, boom is that you can be a little bit more lenient with the number of the specific legends you play with. Uh, you won't necessarily be worried about getting a legend ruled out, and you won't be worried about getting legend flooded in your, your hands. Um, so, I'm in middle I don't know how everybody else feels about it. David? Yeah. <clears throat> I think um, I went through all the stages of, of change when I read the announcement. So, at first I felt anger, or denial, actually. Uh, then I felt some anger, and I expressed that through, uh, through Twitter and a few other... Um, message boards. Then I started thinking about, okay, what, how is this going to affect my game plan um, with the decks I play and the formats that I play? <clears throat> and then I began to realize that it's really not that big of a change. And I started thinking more about Planeswalkers. I think um, like the change with Gaia's Cradles and Mox Diamond, uh, or Mox Opal rather, it, that's neat. You know, you get, you get some added functionality from that. Um, which gives it a power boost, which I thought, you know, that's actually really neat for, uh, for modern and for, for legacy to abuse with their respective, um, card types. But really what, uh, when it hit the court is when I started thinking about Jace battles, because you think about legacy, that's really the only format where Jace the Mind Sculptor it sees a huge presence. And Sure. In Vintage, uh, usually the first person to drop Jace will end up winning anyway. Um, yeah. 
I don't usually think about vintage as being blue on blue matchups. Um, right. So I think more in, in legacy is really where you see that. And one of the key components that was taken away from the uniqueness rule was that you can't use, let's say, a Jace to vindicate an existing Jace on the battlefield. And I think that's going to actually be a pretty big deal um, in Jace battles. <clears throat> where well, before, let's, let's look at it and you make a great point. Where do you feel the divergence is? So before, in terms of the lines of play, he was he represented vindicated if your if your opponent landed. Now what does he represent? Well, I think it doesn't really change much. What um, the first what person to the first person to drop a Jace still gets to brainstorm. Right. Okay. Right. So he's already up um, card advantage. The let's say the defending player. Suppose he reaches four mana on turn four. And we're playing really, you know, Battlecruiser Magic, so no one has any counter spells. He slams down his turn four Jace and starts brainstorming with Jace. So I think you're really at parity for the most part. Um, and that's going to take away... Um, it's going to open up a lot more options, because now you're going to have to find a legitimate answer to addressing Jace, as opposed to just slamming down Jace yeah. to destroy another one. That's I, I definitely... If I could interject, I definitely agree that more real answers to Jace are going to be needed as opposed to, you know, my Jace is on 11 and all of a sudden you happen to draw your copy of Jace and now, oops, now we're back at parity again. So I think definitely that uh, what's going to go up in stock is stuff like Rail Metal Blast or just, you know, stuff like Vindicate, real answers to a Jace the Mind Sculptor or Liliana or what have you, instead of just being able to get there out of nowhere. I think the depth of play is, I think it's deeper. I think the lines of play are a lot deeper now uh, than they were. What are your I thoughts, Sam? That's something that uh, you, you're going to have to change your, your deck building around when you say, you know, my Jace isn't going to kill their Jace, so even if I land my Jace, I'm going to have to dig up, like Matt said, a red elemental blast to vindicate maybe an oblivion ring, which means that people are going to have to cut some of their threats in order to have more answers. Yeah, so the question is, is anything that leads to to uh, here, here's a here's a I'm gonna go into get off my lawn old man mode. You know, we've almost lost uh, a lot of, of what initial magic deck building used to be about, which was uh, versatile removal. You know, if you look at uh, classic blue white strategies, they had creature removal and they had a disenchant was a pillar of the format for for ten years, and we've lost that now. You know, how many decks actually run versatile removal main deck? Uh, miracles, basically, right? With the Oblivion Ring. Um, and, sorry, in the Blue White Archetype. Um, most of the removal is limited to source of plowshares or or removal on the stack in the form of counterspell. Yeah, I remember back in 1997, <clears throat> and this was just about the time where I started playing Magic. And I was still playing Standard, but uh, in that Tempest Standard block, I remember disenchant was a mainstay of, let's say, white weenie deck. You wouldn't, you would start a list with three disenchants, yeah. because you know you had to deal with curse scroll, or even a disc was still around at that time, and having you had to have very narrow but finite answers to problematic cards. I mean, the creature creature removal in, in that standard era was not even lightning bolt; it was shock or incinerate. Um, Black was still running. Dark Banishing, for for what I remember. So there, you had to... I mean, the limitation of a card pool also showed through, but Disenchant in that era was definitely 
a card that was included and was thought about when constructing the back. So maybe it's uh, you know maybe it's detention sphere, maybe it's O-ring. Um, I suppose detention sphere is problematic. Uh, now perhaps a little bit. <laughs> Now, I think one card we, we haven't mentioned yet with regards to the change in the legend rules, Umezawa's Jite. Yeah. Which, oddly enough, still doesn't affect it all that greatly, because the first place, first player to land it and equip it and successfully connect with it still has the advantage, just like the Jite Wars of past. Yeah, we're going to get into a match a little bit into this podcast uh, at the latest Star City, uh, which would have been a very different match you know, had we been a month fast-forwarded um, in terms of uh, the JIT wars, how it would have turned out. Um, and, I, yeah, I think it'll impact JIT. I think, I think JIT's ubiquity, which is, you know, any deck that hopes to equip a man starts with JIT and then fills in from there. Um, yeah, I think it'll, uh, you know, it'll only increase. I mean, it's, it's just, it's more reliable now to be able to go get your JIT and play it. And you don't, you don't have to fear your opponent fetching up a JIT using this Vindicate. I think it's I most going to become apparent in decks that already don't have access to artifact destruction, like um, black decks, <clears throat> uh, for instance, like a, de- a deck like The Gate, which uh, oftentimes includes G- just to be able to have their own, but also as a Vindicate effect against opposing yeah. Jits. Um, and Merfolk, too. Oftentimes that's where um, having copies, your own copies of Umizawa's Jite helps to mitigate the fact that your opponent has it access to it too and is just decimating you turn after turn and that's, that's exactly the point I was going to make especially about Merfolk in particular where that's a card that in some cases really not only stems the bleeding but starts them getting back on top Jit was your main plan and you get rid, and you get rid of it that's a big deal and I think that's an, another example of going to have to bring in a lot of a lot more types of removal maybe a uh, Echoing Truth or uh, Bouncing Artifacts. Um, I'm not sure yet, but I think that's another one of those things where deck building is going to get a little more interesting with this. Null Rod. They used to run Null Rod. Maybe they have to go back to that plan, which shuts off Vials. Kind of Stony Silence, Ancient Grudge, Smash the Smithereens. Maybe those, you know, maybe those also become a little bit more useful. Piffing yeah, Needle, I think... Null Rod in a Tier 1 deck more than anything in the world. That would be just hilariously great to see for me. I think Piffing Needle might see a big resurgence coming back in. Um, True. I mean, you're able to take care of Jace. You're able to take care of Jite. I mean, obviously, it's it's much poor in the Jace on Jace battles, but talk about let's talk about we talk about Jace, um, and we could probably talk about the line to play in a Jace fight at infinitum. But the other Planeswalker I think that gets a big boost from this is Liliana. Um, you know, Matt, you've got a lot of experience playing with Liliana. Um, how does this increase her power level? Well, I think it's definitely... I mean, so say you have a Liliana out and, uh, you know, you've activated her for one turn or you've got a little bit of play going and maybe her loyalty is, you know, taking down a little bit and she's maybe in danger of, say, dying next turn. You don't have to worry anymore about, uh, you know, legend ruling your own Liliana. It's now you can go, you know, minus two, my Liliana goes down to one, slam down second Liliana, either plus or sack another creature. So having having the ability to go say turn three sack turn four sack or some sort of variation of that that's quite powerful. I mean not having to have an extra Liliana stuck in your hand. Say they keep your Liliana down in loyalty, so that is 
so that the second coffee is stuck in your head, that's that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And we're not going to really touch on speculation in this podcast because we're all rich and have awesome cards. But the 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 idea that Liliana is gonna is gonna stabilize at some price that she's at now to me is absurd. I can't see her doing anything but just going up. She has no potential spot to land to be reprinted in the next calendar year, right? Given all the the announcements and how far ahead they uh, they announce these things. I, do you guys see Liliana being a being an eighty dollar card, ninety dollar card? I don't know if I see it going up. Like it depends on. If it becomes better, does it fit into the decks that are going to be good when this change happens? Like Liliana on its own might be good, but if the deck that you put it in is going to be like, eh, then you never know. However, you know, barring some sort of crazy meta change that's going to happen, yeah, I definitely think Liliana has nowhere to go without. Yeah, I mean, I look at cards like Thoughtseize, Jace the Mind Sculptor, and... Uh and and I, I just borrow a reprint. I can't see her. I, I, I can see her crawling up, you know, up and past, you know, near those cards. Maybe not Jace. He's kind of the, uh, the king of the world, as uh, Leonardo once said. But uh, Liliana's got to be a close second. So. I think also it's it's good to point out that Liliana has a big big following in Eternal Magic. Um, she's a real key component in modern decks, um, especially modern Jund. Um, you often see her there as a four of. <clears throat> you see her uh, utilized in Black Disruption decks and Legacy to a great extent. Yeah, and uh, yeah. about the only thing we haven't really seen in, in Vintage is a uh, Black Disruption deck, mostly just as a sign of the times. But um, all it takes is really just one powerful black card in any of the upcoming sets um, will be enough to push a Liliana strategy in, in Vintage to be very playable. Yeah, I don't think she would have been nuts in the winning Bizarre deck. I mean, he was already playing four Deathrite Shamans, and, um, you know, he wouldn't have been, uh, I don't think anybody would have, uh, you know, tarred and feathered him if he had a Liliana in that deck, so. I will have to take this time to interject when, we, when we're mentioning uh, Black Discard and that type of deck's invented set. Well, when we get to hilarious shenanigans, I have a great hilarious shenanigans story about how Black Discard beat me in uh, Champs last year at Gen Con. <laughs> Baller. Well, I think it's a great Thank time you. for a story, then. Oh, I don't know. Let's let's save shenanigans till the end. Let's. Uh, I, I think. Do, does anyone else have anything they'd like to talk about with the uh, legendary rule? I think uh, maybe just to kind of summarize it, we're all kind of seeing it as a. Uh, is a benign change to the way magic is played. Um, it, it definitely has some adaptations that we're going to have to get used to, um, especially as control players are going to have to get used to the fact that they are now going to be staring down Jace, draw or top deck their their Jace, play it, and now have to still contend with their opponent ultimating um, on them. <clears throat> so it, does, it is going to have to adjust how magic is played. But I think overall it's a uh, net benefit for the game of Magic. Yeah, yeah, I do. And it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. There's there's so many cards we can talk about. Click is probably the other big one in the control matchup. And um, Caracas, when you're talking about Click, those two go yeah. hand in hand. Yeah, now you can both have Clicks, both have Caracas, both get into that shenanigans. And, um, you know, Click is uh, one of the words or phrases actually that we're going to ban on this podcast is the term skill-intensive. But... 
you know, two players with clicks and each having a practice could certainly get into a, um, you know, a uh, depth use of, of the stack because, and the fact that you can be flashing them at the end of the turn in order to try to nug the other guy's jace. Um, blue, it's like blue has access to a, uh, a haste man that they can use to, to kind of attack chase in combat, right? So, uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see a match play out where both players have an active Jace, an active Caracas, a Jeet, and a Click. Just bouncing back and forth in and out, trying to essentially get the upper hand. And uh, it's going to be very unique to see how those matches play out in the first few weeks after the change take place. And all the thing I think will be really interesting though. Sorry, go ahead. That all that is why I play decks with four suppression field um, I think though that's really one of the things that'll be really interesting is when you've got something already on on the battlefield that drawing a second one is not nearly as bad. For example, drawing a second Vendetta click means you get to take another look at their hand. Drawing a second uh, Liliana means that it's a three mana diabolity, which in some cases really isn't that terrible. Um, and I think that's one of those things that again, it's just it's not good or bad. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. The other one is uh, is. <coughs> Is attack with Thalia, cast Thalia. You know the the especially in the decks like Death and Taxes that run full sets of Liliana. Um, sometimes they have Liliana glut and they don't have Brainstorm to wash away the tears of uh, of drawing too many of the same lights and stuff. Or wait for it, Thalia on Thalia battles where everything costs two more. Oh yes, <laughs> I live for those games. Those are going to be awesome. <laughs> I'll cast my three mana Swords to Plowshares on your Thalia. But they bounce it with Caracas. Oh, I should have known. I should have played around it. Obviously. You were playing white. Why didn't you have four Caracas now that you can play two of them on the same turn? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a mirror. The Death and Taxes mirror under the new Legend rule where they've got four Mangars, four Thalias, four Caracases each. And if you're playing it like I play it, you have Tividar of Thorn in the sideboard. That's and right. six hours later, game one was finished. <laughs> <laughs> So I think this uh, this might be a good time to actually segue into discussing some uh, matches that happened quite recently. Uh, Jacob, if you want to maybe talk a little bit about uh, what we're going to be discussing. Sure. So, um, you know, imagine a, uh, a nice lazy Sunday afternoon. You're, uh, you're at home, maybe organizing your cars, maybe doing some laundry, cleaning up your room. And uh, you have Star City Live uh, broadcast in the background. <clears throat> and... Uh, you happen to hear that the announcers are announcing a matchup between Maverick and Deathblade on camera. So, of course, you divert all your attention to Star City Live and start watching, hoping to see some uh, sweet Maverick action. And uh, that's exactly what happened uh, last Sunday. Um, I, I was think watching. That only happened to you. I, it probably only happened to me, but I, I like to think that uh, someone out there shared my uh, sentiment for, uh, and at least fervor for uh, for Maverick. But uh, specifically in the match um, in round six between Meru Bachnat and Gerard Fabiano. Uh, now each of them were at 4-0-1. So they're doing reasonably well. And uh, they're going into game three on camera. So um, I think Maru is on the play. And they both keep their seven. Uh, he starts off with a Horizon Canopy and a Mom. Now, uh, before I kind of get into the uh, the play tactics, uh, let me just uh, get some thoughts about 
um, that matchup. So kind of like lead into it um, from the other guys. So Matt, why don't you start with um, kind of your predictions about Maverick versus uh, Deathblade? Well, I think like the way that the Asper decks have kind of shifted as of late has kind of gone from a lingering souls control build with you know only about eight creatures. Uh, moving towards more of a creature heavy build with, you know, Dark Confidant and Death Ray Shaman and less Snapcaster Mage kind of source plowshares of action. And I think because of that shift, you, you don't have as much removal, uh, capability. Uh, I think that Maverick is going to be the better creature deck. And I would predict that, uh, that the Maverick deck would be able to take it. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts, maybe Sam? Well, I will say that you were correct that the Maverick deck did take it. Um, I agree with you that that Maverick is the better creature deck there. Um, I think it's a situation where uh, all the creatures in both sides of the matchup, they're, they're not just big guys, with the exception of if Maverick is playing the list. Um, or Knight. Knight. Or, or Knight, which is sometimes a big guy, sometimes does some other things, which happened in this match and brought up a wasteland at least once, I think twice. Um, but I think it's... Uh, I think I agree... Uh, Maverick is favored in this matchup. Uh, you're running probably four Wasteland against a deck that only runs three basics. You're running something that taxes them, and they're running a mana base that's spread all over the place. So I think it's a game that uh, could potentially go along with Maverick winning, basically. Yeah, I would have to say Maverick's favored. Uh, in, in, and what exacerbates the situation here for Fabiano is He's running the one with the super squirrely mana base that's not only trying to cast Jason Mind Sculptor, he's also trying to cast Liliana. Uh, and he's also got Tropical Islands running around in his deck, so he's got double black, double blue, uh, and Maverick is a deck that can both attack your mana base on the stack with Thalia and, and uh, can attack your lands with Wasteland. So uh, I would also think, and in, in this particular matchup it doesn't happen, but I would but also think that Maverick is a deck that has uh, a reasonably good chance of not getting mana screwed. Um, Jacob could probably speak to that more, but uh, two-color, resilient mana base, access to mana door, uh, you know, the mana base is And a bunch of ways to search up whatever lands you need as well. Yeah. Yeah, so those are, those are good uh, uh, thoughts about the matchup, and of course, all of them are right. Uh, these guys did. Yeah, that's, our predictions are kind of cheating, being that we all watched the match before we recorded it. Yeah, it's uh, gave these guys a little bit of homework. Um, but getting on to the actual match, I'm actually going to go through some of the play sequences, and uh, feel free to interrupt me, guys, um, when oh, you feel like when you feel like uh, we've hit a good decision point, essentially in the game. Um, maybe we can talk about it. Talk about alternate lines of play. Um, some of the options that maybe Gerard had or even Meru had um, that could have shifted the game at that point. So Meru begins on the play, and um, he keeps a, a hand with one land, um, Horizon Canopy, and two Mother of Runes. Now, I didn't get a good look at Gerard's keep. Um, I do know he had two lands, I think a Tundra and a Tropical. Um, I believe... I believe he had a source of plasters, possibly even a second one. And I think um, he had two stone forges and two swords of plasters. Or no, he had a supreme verdict in his opener. I think that may have came uh, came later. I know he probably had some black cards, which you know we didn't really see action. We'll get to that in a little bit. 
So, right. So, <clears throat> and, and this is his land drop. So right away in Gerard's mind, he's probably thinking, okay, my opponent kept a, a really weak hand. Obviously, Mother of Ruins was the reason he chose to keep that hand. Um, and I would agree with Meru, uh, Source of, uh, Mother of Ruin is really a good card to be looking for in these types of creature-on-creature matchups. Um, and Gerard correctly identifies Mother of Ruins being a key problem on the first turn by swordsing uh, Meru's mom. <laughs> and that's wow. something that the wow. as well when they, uh, when they go through the match a little later and they're discussing whether or not that's a good idea and say, you know, on turn one, you're talking about one of the cards that was at one point the best one drop in all of magic. Do you swords on turn one? Of course you do. That's not even a question. Uh, at least on turn one. At least on turn one. Well, it's, it, it's, it's funny because he seems very convicted. You know, he's got strong convictions about uh, And we use the term, as Matt pointed out, we use the term on this podcast, plowing your mom. He, he's, he plows his mom with great conviction, but... But I don't think uh, I don't think he followed through on his on his strategy. If Mother of Ruins was going to be the the, the the pivotal card in this match, I don't understand uh, why he doesn't sort the second one. And I think it comes back to bite him. Right. So Sean's alluding to Gerard's second turn play, but backing that up a little bit. So uh, Meru does miss his land drop, but continues with his strategy of deploying the mom. Um, Gerard draws his card plays a Tropical, and uh, very convincingly plays so- Stoneforge Mystic to find a Batter Skull. Now, now at this point, I'm not quite so clear if he did have the second Swords to Plashers. I suspect he did, but uh, he didn't really show his hand um, on camera as well as we had hoped. So, um, he could have, he could have not, um, but he did chose to go with the more aggressive play of Stoneforge Mystic into Batter Skull. But my question is... Uh, uh, they discuss where, uh, that has happened a lot in the Stars of the Open series, where I don't know why you just go after Battlefield. I think you go after Jay. It's castable. 
uh, it deals with the one ones. You've already shown a facility to to know the value of the utility creatures like Mother of Ruins. I think I think at the time, um, and the commentators made mention of this too for this particular play, um, grabbing the Jite wouldn't really make much sense because Meru has a Mother of Ruins. Now, Gerard did allow his opponent to essentially untap her from Mother of Ruins, so any future attack with a creature equipped to Jite would be blanked. So at least, so at least having the Batter Skull would force Meru's hand to make blocks and activate Mother of Runes. So essentially forces him to activate it. But well, I think the g would still force him to activate it because, I mean, you don't want the other guy's g taking tokens. I mean, hey, you know, put a blocker in front of it, you know, protection, and then it gives you a window for you to cast your sword spiders. And maybe you don't get tokens that turn. Yeah, but either, either play with those and attack Mother of Runes, but one, you have a passable artifact in the case that he swords your stone for it. So, yeah, I think it's six or half dozen. I mean, um, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think I think the mistake before that was not getting rid of the mother rooms. I think I think this is where the game gets off the rails for uh, Fabiano was, was just not getting rid of the mother rooms. Right. So, continuing on to the third turn, keep in mind this is all by turn two. So we've already discussed a couple of lines of play that... Um, seem a little amiss for a matchup where Mother of Ruins plays a big part. Um, so Mero begins his turn, third turn. He draws a Noble Hierarch, still missing his land drop, and uh, deploys it. Um, one of the key features of Maverick is that even though it is a creature deck and, and it can operate on light mana, it typically needs at least three mana to get to its endgame or uh, really operating mana. And without that, you're really just hampered on what kind of threats and what kind of answers you can deploy. So, Meru, recognizing that, um, plays his only, only card he has that he can deploy, which is Noble Hierarch, and um, continue to develop his, his mana for late game. Gerard, of course, um, he draws a Wasteland for his turn, and recognizing that Meru is mana screwed decides to ca- to essentially destroy the horizon canopy putting Mero down to two creatures in play and no lands um, and access to only one mana so that was a pretty quick turn um, he couldn't really attack it also leaves uh, Gerard with two mana to deploy the batter skull and keep in mind Fabiano at this point hasn't seen a fetch land as of yet he hasn't seen a brainstorm um, and he just raw dog those two duels. He has a fetch for them. So, you know, maybe in his defense, he's thinking, all right, you know, this is uh, I'm going to see a brainstorm or a fetch, you know, in the next couple of cards here. This is I'm going to I'm going to buy myself time by attacking these mana base. Um, and he also has a, a handful of black cards, so he's he desperately wants to draw that black source to deploy those threats. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I'm just trying to think. He, he switches gears and he starts attacking uh, mana, which makes sense. He's missed, missed land drops, but um, you know he had to be assuming he was going to draw into a brainstorm, right? To, to use the wasteland, uh, clearly, you know, he had no doubt that mana was going to be So he was thinking he was going to draw into mana to cast those spells, or maybe just swim with battle spell. I guess I don't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't have much confidence. But yeah, we'll have to speculate what was going on in his mind, but. Uh, Really, all we have to get by is the plays he did make. Um, and so, Mero begins his turn four by drawing Greensun Zenith. And uh, he makes the only play he can make again, 
which is Zenith for zero, um, which fetches out Dried Arbor. So again, he's developing his mana base, trying to get back to that two, three mana sweet spot for the Maverick deck. Uh, and then quickly passes the turn, as he doesn't have any uh, any other actions. Um, Gerard at uh, Meru's end step slides the Batterskull into play. Um, he quickly draws his, he untaps, quickly draws his card, and then motions as if he's going to be casting, um, which I think may be a removal spell, or may have been Dark Confidant. Um, the card that he was yeah, motioning he for. Yeah, the Dark Confidant at the Dryad Arbor, uh, face down, as kind of a, a feint, you know? Yeah, it looked like this, if this he was motioning for a removal spell, um, this may have been a mind trick, um, I'm not really clear, but uh, he takes it back. Uh, his opponent didn't really see which card um, Gerard was going for. He decides to attack with the Batterskull and the Stoneforge Mystic. Now, uh, Mero makes a play, which I think is a little bit on the weak side. He uses Mother of Ruins to block and fog the Batterskull. Now, uh, keep in mind that at this time, Gerard does have a Swords to Plashers in his hand, as well as a Stoneforge Mystic. So um, maybe we can get some thoughts from uh, Matt, Sean, or Sam about how you would have played that um, that turn differently. I think, like, at this point in the game, you're still trying to develop your mana base, and your mana base right now consists of two creatures. This is kind of a big deal. Um, it basically turns his removal spell into Wasteland slash, you know, land destruction. So I think you still have some time in the, the sense, sense of, you don't need to block a here. There's no reason... I mean, sure, he doesn't gain the life, and you lose a little... You know, you don't lose life either, but... Does that matter or not? Once you get going, you're going to be beating down with more creatures. Um, you're going to be... You need to protect them. I think saving your mother rooms is probably... I mean, you know that they're important from the fact that uh, the Deathlight player immediately sort of is your first one, so why would you throw it under the bus? Turn it around. Fabiano passed the turn and she didn't sort of the second mother when she had summoned the signal. So, and he has a brainstorm. So maybe the Maverick player is thinking, okay, well, if he hasn't sorted through yet, he's only drawn one card off the top of the deck, the deck um, I'm going to bet he doesn't have a second sword. And, uh, and that's correct. He, instead of choosing to swords the mother ruins when she's vulnerable, he elects to cast Stoneforge Mystic number two, and fetches up for a GTA. So, <clears throat> I think yeah, we I all. I think he's casting Mystic because it's available. Like he's got two mana. Well, I've got this Stoneforge Mystic. I might as well get a GTA. Or is he casting that because he's thinking that this is the best thing he could do, rather than, as we're saying, sort of cloud sharing the bomb? Well, I think it may be one of the two ultimate only plays he can make that turn. Um, the choice between casting a Stoneforge Mystic and deploying more threats and getting more equipment out onto the battlefield. But, why not, I mean, with the, with the Mother of Ruins taken care of, if you were to Swords of Cloudshare, fine. So you maybe don't get to develop that turn as much, okay. But then you get to attack in with the Batter Skull and subsequent equipment that you're going to be playing. That's going to be all more effective later on. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think we could take a step back and 
So if you're on Fabiano's side, you're looking at the board state there, and I think I still I still say if, if the plan is to win with the batter skull against a man that's rude opponent, the right play there is to sort of mother after she goes for black. Because what's the what's the worst thing that can happen? He top decks the land, which I believe he ends up uh, uh, top decking Cavern of Souls a couple turns later, but. What's the worst thing that's going to happen when this guy untaps? It's probably he's going to, he's going to find a land and cast Knight of the Reliquary, right? And I think at that point it's still advantage because uh, you can still, A, hope to draw into your mana. At this point you also have a Supreme Verdict in hand. Um, you know, so you have an out. In other words, Battle Soul is still a path to victory that I think he's committed to, but by not killing the Mother of Rune, I think he... He, he took a left turn off the path that it set out on. Because if he was committed to winning with Batterskull, I think towards the mother there was... I think, there, I think he almost had to do it. Even if even if, uh, even if he top takes the land and lays him out of the rope, right? It's still... In other words, the sword does him almost no good anyway. I just feel like he had to use it there or uh, or never. And you see throughout the rest of the game, you get... Also, you're at parity at that point. Uh, you're not having to do double swords to get rid of the mom, you know what I mean? Um, right. You blow four damage, but um, the awful feeling of having to double sword the mom isn't there. Right, so the game kind of develops out after that. Um, Meru draws his third Mother Runes, and still no land. So uh, he casts a Pride Mage to go on the offensive. Uh, this is turn five. Gerard untaps, attacks with Batterskull, Mom blocks again. This time, uh, Gerard still has another option to destroy the Mother of Runes with Source Supply Shares, but elects to cast Gita instead. Uh, turn 6, Meru draws a Source Supply Shares, attacks with a Pride Mage as a 4-4. Um, Gerard blocks with the Batterskull token, and Meru gives his creature pro-black, again giving an Aubrey opportunity for <laughs> Mother of Runes to get Source Supply Shares. Um, so Meru uh, trades with the Batterskull, or destroys the Batterskull token in uh, in combat, keeping his Pride Mage able to destroy either the Gitae or the Batterskull at this point, um, both of which Gerard has deployed. But he chooses to cast the Gitae to Legend Rule. Um, now keep in mind at this point, Mother of Runes has prevented Batterskull from getting 12 lives so far. Um... Gerard untaps for his turn, draws Dark Confidant, motions to SCP uh, again, uh, that is, he puts it in the front of his hand and ponders it and kind of moves it around, looks at it, and he finally gets to cast it, but he chooses to go on Noble Hierarch. Which, Which I, feel I feel like Noble, like, like Sergeant Noble, Noble does nothing for you there, except, except if you were like, like oh, he's a, the, the uh, Accelerate only, only gets it now for three. three. I think, I think the best way there is to go for the Mother Runes, and if not, going for the Accelerate it's going to blow up Dragonstone. Right. At this point, that's your only way to win, as long as you grab a third one. We're also game three, keep in mind. You know, so this is, uh, you know, I don't know, I, you know, if you want to really go for it, you should, you should be going for it. And I, yeah, it just seemed like it is the world just did. And maybe he almost pounded himself into a state of stubbornness. Like, I didn't sort of this mother, I was going to win this jit fight somehow, and I was going to know that thing with a token off my jit. I just seemed like once he was down the path of not burning
Yeah. And I think not only was it game three, it was game three with, at this point, about four and a half minutes on the clock under the camera, which could be stubbornness or could be one of those things where you know it's just once you've said, I'm not sorting that mom, you don't even think about it for the rest of the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the game continues to kind of uh, go downhill for Gerard as he uh, continues to brick on uh, colored mana sources to deploy his threats. Meanwhile, Meru is starting to draw lands now and is able to start developing his board. I think he casts um, Knight as well as Mother of Ruins and Thalia and Fauna Shaman, just deploying immense amount of pressure on Gerard who still is not able to cast or uh, essentially put together a plan to supreme verdict um, his opponent's numerous board state. Yeah, and, and in Fabiano finally gets access to the brainstorm which tries to cast one man but the judge points out that it costs 200 value. He does, and finally finds the blue Delta. And um, I think where Meru almost lost his match. Mary has to think to himself, how can I lose this match, right? Like, it's Supreme Verdict, I'm assuming he knows the target, right? And I think at that point, his only goal has to be keeping uh, Fabiano off five man. Don't you guys kind of agree? Like, oh, I definitely agree. agree. I mean, you've already got the wasteland machine that is Nitro Oliver. I mean, I think definitely what you do is you just go after his color lands. If you get him off two whites, I mean, there's only, what, three tundras in the deck? Twice, in fact, not just once, twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that was, uh, that was, uh, he almost could have lost the game there uh, by allowing Fabiano to have uh, have mana. Here's another one, So, looking back at, uh, at that game, uh, obviously it spiraled out of control, um, as Meru was able to draw out of his mana screw, and, <clears throat> Gerard continued to uh, to brick on his available answers. What was the pivotal uh, play in that game that really set Gerard back? I think it was not storing the second mother of runes. I think I think he got I think he got eight to twelve damage on that batter skull. He would have gotten through. Uh, you know, I think he would have been able to. Uh, I don't think at any point, well, it's not necessarily true, because he, he ends up, uh, Maru ends up throwing into the private game. Um, 
I mean, neither neither Dick played well. I, I just think there wasn't there wasn't a. I think I think the second level rooms had to get swords. Uh, I think things might not have worked out his way anyway, but uh, they weren't going to work out his way with an active mother of rooms. That would have given them the best chance to win that game in the time remaining. I agree. I think, I think the two things he didn't, he didn't look at was he's playing against a Mana Denial deck that has Wastelands and also has access to Thalia. You know, this Supreme Verdict is cool, but how realistic is it, is it for me that I'm going to actually cast it? I mean, also, too, uh, the Deathblood player has to consider that, I mean, if you leave that Mother Rune around, if he gets another Green Sons again, I think as the Maverick player, you have to go, guess what I'm going for, Gaddity. Yes. Shutting off your your chase if that becomes a problem. If you have to hard cast matter still, and of course the Supreme Bird. I mean, once once you've got the mother of Gettyk set up, and you've already seen that you're losing in the the equipment slash creature battle, well then you're just gone. Good point. Good point. So, I think that's a good lesson for um, to kind of take away from from these creature on creature battles. Um, and, and reaffirmed yet again that Mother of Ruins is a force to be reckoned with in uh, in these legacy creature features. Somebody has a thing in front of the sword that says, Always plow their mom. Couldn't be more true. Are we sure we're not talking about Call of Duty? Are talking about plowing people's moms left and right? And I went that joke of the night. I mean, I can't, I mean, our agreement was to keep this podcast, like, somewhere near PG-13, and if I actually uh, spat back the epithets that I hear on uh, Xbox Live, then the podcast would have immediately moved never be allowed on the internet. Yeah, it would be NC-17 immediately, and I'd have to apologize to Jesse Jackson, so. Just remember, you're allowed to use one F-bomb in, uh, in a 14-day movie, so, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I think you already used it, uh, in five minutes into it. That's true. <laughs> Next time we'll have to fight over again. So, uh, kind of to recap, that was a, uh, we thought it was a very interesting game to kind of review, um, take a look where the missteps occurred, and um, something to learn and uh, look forward to in uh, your future creature features. Um, before we wrap up, wrap up, I just want to make a couple announcements for tournaments. I think we uh, missed that in the beginning. Um, I know coming up uh, next week there's a Star City event in St. Louis um, featuring Standard and Legacy. So uh, looks like we're going to have another good week of um, Legacy decks to kind of break down and discuss. Um, Matt, Sean, Sam, are there any events uh, going around in your neighborhoods? Well, depending on when the next podcast is, um, there is a rare uh, vintage event of note. Uh, it's taking place out on Long Island, um, and it's being publicized on the manager. It's actually got a hundred dollar buy-in, um, and I believe they've got eighty. They're close to eighty. Pre-ready? Uh, yeah, at this point, it's called the NYSE Open to the New York uh, Stack Exchange. Uh, they're going to draft out the Power Eight at the end of it. It's a hundred dollar buy-in. Um, and it is proxy, I think it's 15 proxy. I think that's correct, yeah. And so uh, we may have a vintage event to talk about, and I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how the results of our Moxie impact uh, that tournament. I may make it to that tournament, uh, depending on uh, how motivated I am to go back home. I might have to grow up 
Sounds like it's going to be fun. Except it's in Long Island and the Lutheran Church. Um, so that's going to be the downside. Oh, make sure to cast Demonic Tutor over and over. <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, I want to well, only Alpha. Only strength on it. I mean, flanked by two lords of the pit by the time I'm finished. Also, and this is just a side note, but um, Jeff Menji will be there as well. He's a pretty epic magic artist. Another pretty cool thing. So that, that's kind of spurring me to go up there and get all of my moves signed. Very nice. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty, pretty impressive, impressive artist. artist. Yeah, you have to think maybe he lives in the basement of that church or something. Like, why else would he show up? But, um, but anyway, yeah, he sorts the black here, most bizarre Baghdad. He's done some epic stuff. Unfortunately, I don't have anything locally uh, coming up. We have the Vancouver Legacy Classic Summer Edition coming up in August. But uh, other than that, nothing, uh, nothing super recent. Maybe I'll be able to talk about it uh, closer to uh, the tournament date. Yes, I will definitely uh, give a few more details about that for people in the Vancouver area. Well, you still have Brian Adams. This is true. We will always have Brian Adams. But you also gave us Justin Bieber, so they kind of can't laugh. Well, on the Terrio gave We don't have anything to do with that, so. There's uh, one tournament series that I would like to actually uh, bring up. Um, it's coming up in about a month from uh, the recording date of this podcast. Uh, it's actually going to be uh, MTG Deals Open. So uh, MTG Deals is an up-and-coming um, vendor in Southern California, and uh, they've been growing like wildfire. So um, they've recently moved into a much larger um, store. I wouldn't even call it a store. It's almost like an event center. And uh, to kick it off, they're doing a grand opening tournament, um, somewhat modeled, somewhat modeled like the Star City Open events. Um, so it's two day event featuring um, cash prizes. I think it's a four thousand dollar four thousand dollar Legacy tournament on Saturday, July sixth, and a five thousand dollar Standard tournament on July sixth. So they're kind of swi- switching around to dates of Saturday Sunday. And um, <clears throat> this is going to be pretty big. Uh, really good cash prizes, really good uh, events coordination by them. Um, they've been hosting events on a regular basis here in Southern California. And the competition is good. I mean, I play there. Uh, sometimes I even top eight. So uh shows you... Good. Yeah. And if I can't top eight these events mo- on a consistent basis, it's it's got some pretty sick competition. So, uh, for those of us not as good as you, like me, I see they're having a mock raffle and a lotus raffle, which, I mean, to me, I think that's one of those things that if, if you're not sure whether or not you want to play, that's one of those little things that might make it worth the couple-hour drive, depending on where you're at. Absolutely. This is, just looking at this, if this was within four or five hours of me, I would certainly be there. Absolutely. I completely forgot about that. I'm usually just psyched to have a big tournament. Um, I don't even keep track of the little things, so... Yeah, I think it's a Mox for the Legacy Day and a Black Lotus for the Standard Day um, as a raffle. <clears throat> so, 
pretty big incentive to uh, try to make it out there if you're going to be uh, traveling anywhere near Los Angeles around July 4th. Highly recommend you uh, come check out the store, come say hi, and uh, introduce yourself. Uh, should be a lot of blast, and I'm hoping to, uh, to have some good stories from that event. So, to wrap things up, um, this has been the uh, first episode of Everyday Eternal. Um, hope you enjoyed listening to us uh, talk at length about some uh, some matches and ideas about uh, Eternal play. Cool. Well, I guess um, everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, next, every other week. I'm not, we're, I don't think we're really sure on that yet. Next time, that's when we'll see them. Next time. Next, see you next time. <laughs>